0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street. Do you need a conference room for your next meeting? Learn more by visiting 100bogart.com. Welcome back to Hardcore from Heritage Radio Network. Over 6 episodes, we're taking a close look at the rebirth of American cider. I'm Hannah Forden. For the last 2 episodes, we've been learning about the intersection between farming, science, and policy. We've looked at different agricultural practices and experiments to get a sense of the future of apple growing. Today, we're going out to our favorite bars, wine shops, and cider festivals to explore the many ways the industry is reaching out to curious drinkers. We'll visit retailers that are expanding their cider selection.
2: I love this job because I am the spokesperson for farmers. I am more or less selling like a glorified farm to good. This is the art form of the most base practice of humankind, which is farming
3: and take a close look at the language and approachability of cider. And like, I want to drink interesting things, I want it to be delicious, and I want to support incredible producers, but if we're not having fun while we're doing that, then um, I think I might need to go into a different industry.
1: (laughs) We're checking out the front and back labels to
4: understand what's inside the bottle. I get, you know, texts and, you know, everyone's asking, what cider should we drink? What cider should we drink? This week, we're moving on from the orchard
1: to the marketplace to look at how we promote, buy, and sell cider. While cider has become more familiar to American consumers in recent years, it can still be difficult to find artisan cider in stores. Meet Eden Mayora. If you're ever in Ithaca, New York, and find yourself in the market for a bottle— you'll find Eden behind the counter at Cellar Door. Salespeople like him are at the front lines when it comes to educating consumers about cider and telling the story behind the product.
2: Has that percentage of people who seem to know what they're talking about and you know do know what they're talking about, has that increased? Yes. And I think there is even like the kind of bottom end of that. I used to get a lot of the question of what is cider? And I think I get that question less and less nowadays.
1: But even if you're in the market for a bottle of cider, it can be difficult to describe exactly what you want.
3: So more often than not, when a customer comes into Redfield and let's say they've had a handful of ciders before, but they haven't had a lot of cider in their life, one of the things that I hear the most is, I really want a dry cider. What people are really asking for is like, I don't want something that's really sweet, and I don't want something that tastes like some of the stuff I bought in the grocery store. And I don't know how to talk about that, so I'm just going to use the term dry. That's Olivia Mackey. She's the co-owner of Redfield Cider in Oakland, California.
1: She likes to invite her customers to sample her cider menu in order to gain confidence as cider drinkers. Like we learned in our episode on terroir, the first step in understanding cider is to taste.
3: And one thing that we do at Redfield is we'll pour flights so people can try a couple of different things all at once. And more often than not, they actually like the ciders that have like a little bit of residual sugar in them. They have a little bit of sweetness. Sweetness is a really beautiful tool to be able to use and cider making and winemaking and beer making, it brings out acidity and it can bring out tannin and it can make it feel, you know, more round on your palate. And it's a wonderful thing to be able to use and What I think people are really asking for is balance, right? Inexperienced cider drinkers might assume that all cider is sweet, and they
1: gauge whether they like the category as a whole on the one tasting note. But, as we've learned, cider is much more complex than the U.S. market has given it credit for. Here's Eden again.
2: We've seen this happen with rosé. And I think rosé had a similar connotation where it was supposed to be like, oh, rosé is sweet. I don't like rosé. And it's really just because, again, people had only been afforded the opportunity to try, you know, sweet, maybe jug wine rosé or like white Zinfandel. And usually that's when I know if I can pour them a taste of cider, that that will completely change their idea.
1: While there's always more to learn, it's usually good to start with the basics.
2: So basically I start off by saying that, you know, cider is, um, it's fermented apple juice. And it's just really the main difference is that That's really it though. Like really, there's not a whole lot much else that I could necessarily say. And almost I feel like the more I say, apart from that, that's like the easiest thing I can tell somebody. Mm -hmm. In the way it's so easy, it almost kind of breaks people at times.
1: (laughs) The more you try, the more you can differentiate between flavors and styles.
2: When talking about apple-y-ness insiders, sometimes I give them a spectrum where I might bring out a cider from France, and then a the cider made domestically, um, say, like Chitin Strings, Pioneer, Pippin. And I sort of give them a spread and say like, okay, in the apple flavor spectrum, you can have bright, fresh tart like you're eating an apple. Mm-hmm. On the other end of that spectrum, you can get more like browned, baked, stewed apple flavors.
1: Culinary traditions and storytelling go hand in hand. Here's Rachel Fryer. She's a cider educator, and this year she was responsible for organizing Cider Weeks all over New York State. Like many cider enthusiasts,
4: she is an avid storyteller. I love telling people a little bit about the background of the cider, a little bit about where the cider comes from, what kind of apples go into it, you know, describe maybe a reference to culture. You know, there are different styles of cider in the world, and this is like a dry cider maybe in a Spanish style or this one has a little sweetness made in the style of a French cider um, and I feel like they really connect to that they're like wait what There's history in cider. There are different cider regions in the world. And I I feel like that really piques their interest sometimes. And I love making the connection to also, like when I'm talking about New York ciders, Um, there's a connection to New York uh, product. I take the whole, let's talk about this story-wise. And I think that really works to bring people in and pique their interest and get them behind what they're drinking.
1: Learning about something new can be intimidating, especially in the world of food and beverage. It's easy to feel apprehensive when you know you're not an expert.
3: Trying to figure out, you know, what makes them tick, what they enjoy, and then finding something within our offerings that fits within that without making them ever feel uncomfortable. I don't ever want somebody to feel bad about their drinking choices. Drinking's supposed to be fun. (laughs) So how do business owners like Olivia Mackey spread the good word? Customer service is incredibly important. We have pretty extensive staff training at Redfield. So before we opened, when we hired our opening crew, we had two days of just, you know, cider history, Cider 101. We tasted through a ton of stuff. Um, everybody gets a copy of Ben Watson's Hard and Sweet. They, it's a gift, our gift to them, and we hope that they read it. And then we're constantly training on the floor as well. Learning to love cider
1: is crucial to being able to sell it. But so is learning to love the cider makers. Meet Paige Flory, who opened a cider shop to fill a void in her local market.
5: One of the reasons why I opened the store that I opened and why we're so cider-centric is because I was very frustrated looking for ciders, not just in the Hudson Valley, but even down in the city. I couldn't find um, places that sold a tremendous selection of cider and even... When I found a place that had some ciders, I was frustrated that they couldn't tell me much about the ciders that they had.
1: To broaden her knowledge of the beverage, Paige
5: went straight to the source. I just started reaching out to more and more cider makers and going and visiting the places, which is, by the way, the best way to learn, is to go and visit the people who actually make the products. She finds that a
1: hands-on approach is what's needed when selling cider.
5: Our entire store is pretty hand-sold, especially the cider part, because most people haven't even heard of half of the brands we've got in the store. So everything in the store is pretty much a hand-sell, particularly in the cider space. So having these relationships with the cider makers and having been um, at the cideries, that allows me to really paint a picture for the customers that come in, and also to tell an amazing story, because I can say, yes, I helped with a crush on this, um, or I helped bottle this. Behind this new and ever-growing industry
1: are powerful advocates who have been fighting to get cider a place on the menu from behind the scenes. Megan Larmer of the Glenwood Institute is one of those cider champions. She knows that restaurant workers, bartenders, and salespeople can really shape what people are drinking
0: as I think you see in a lot of different, you know, artisanal food spaces, taking the burden of telling that story off of the producer themselves and giving the educational opportunity to the many passionate uh, storytellers who work in the food and beverage industry to be better able to tell that story. And some of that is educating the trade itself. And some of it, I would argue, is actually educating the, the cider makers as to how they can connect with those people, how they can connect with the distributors, and how they can have the language to talk to the trade in a way that the trade will understand.
1: Getting on the menu is half the battle.
4: Here's cider expert and Cider Week organizer, Rachel Fryer. I definitely see um, a lot more restaurants and beverage menus including cider. The first thing I do when I go to a restaurant is look at their beverage menu and look for cider. I'm like, oh, where is this restaurant going to put their cider? That to me is the goal of the cider industry, to have a cider section, because cider is not, you know, a replacement for beer. It's not a substitute for beer. It's not a substitute for wine. It should definitely be its own category.
1: Once cider is readily available to consumers, the next step is catching their eye with a product they'll enjoy. Language is perhaps the most powerful tool that we have to become confident and discerning cider drinkers.
3: Dry and sweet is probably the biggest ones, right? Because that's something that people can automatically go towards. You know, talking about acid and tannin is really important. Not everybody always knows what that means. Sometimes it's like, this is going to be sour, it's going to be vinegary. We'll also talk about, like, tasting notes. So, like, this is going to be, like, tropical or, you know, this is going to be really earthy. We say barnyardy a lot because we sell a lot of English cider and French cider. And when someone has English cider for the first time and I say barnyardy, they look at me and then they just start laughing. And it's so great to like, have that first experience where they're like, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I'm like, yeah, uh-huh. it's barnyardy. If you think about it hard enough,
1: I think we can all imagine what barnyard might taste like. Jordan Werner-Berry has thought about the language we use to describe cider more than just about anyone else. You can check out the full breadth of her Cider Language project on Instagram. Jordan looks at the vocabulary that the wine world has as a
6: model for cider. Not having a language of our own actually is sort of a freedom for cider, because it's going to give us the chance to think about what the industry wants to present to consumers and really define those words, and then focus our energy around making sure that people know what those mean in a way that's really accessible.
1: It takes a village to fix an industry. Jen Smith, former executive director of the New York Cider Association, is all about giving makers and drinkers the tools they need.
7: So I'm going to talk for a minute about the Merlin dryness scale that the New York Cider Association developed.
1: The dryness scale ranges from 0 to 4, from dry to sweet. Cider is classified accordingly as dry, -dry, semi-dry, semi-sweet, and sweet. It's inspired by the International Riesling Scale, which was created to similarly classify the taste of German
7: wine. We developed this program, right? the dryness scale program and, and the scale itself, to address consumer confusion that is perpetuated by bad actors in the industry who are leveraging a sense of mystification around what sugar's role is in cider, building on a a generations-old sense that dry, even though it is not understood, is good or better or preferable or more sophisticated, right? There's... um, a a sense that sweet drinks are um, childish or, or, um, you know, they've been feminized. And, uh, you know, so, so first of all, what is dry? And secondly, how do I know if what I'm going to drink is dry or sweet? Our hope is that as this scale is adopted, Um, and, and we have the opportunity to educate consumers around what it is, that it will become a standard in the industry across the nation and that that can help consumers ensure that the cider they're purchasing is the cider that they want to drink. If the dryness scale
1: was put into practice across the industry, it would demystify what lies inside the bottle and hopefully empower consumers to make confident choices.
6: Here's Jordan Warner Berry again. I hope that we can have styles that everyone agrees on that have some sort of meaning or parameters that just because it makes it easier for people to pick up a bottle, look at the label and say, oh, I think I know what this is, because you're not always going to have a really great bartender or a really great salesperson or a producer standing there to be like, oh, this means this. And like, if you like this, you're going to like that. There needs to be some element of products speaking for themselves. At this point, we know that cider is still a relatively
1: small industry with many producers self-distributing. Without the resources of a big distributor behind them, standardization may not come quickly or easily to the craft cider market. But luckily,
6: there are many ways for a producer to tell their story. There's an element of storytelling that you want people to know What you're doing and why what you're doing is special, and why you do what you do. And whether that's your work in the orchard, or how you're farming, or your foraging, or your thoughts around how you view fermentation, or philosophical views about cider as wine, or you know, cider doesn't have to be one thing. That's what gives the context that gets someone interested in what you're doing. And that's what's going to create a longer term customer. If you have a cool story and someone finds out about it, they're going to want to come meet you. They're going to want to try more of your stuff. Um, so that's a huge, definitely a huge aspect of it. But it needs to pair together with some sort of standardized flavor information, sensory information information or style distinction.
1: There is so much planning, designing, and storytelling that goes on before a bottle of cider reaches the consumer. We'll learn more about the role labels play after a quick break. This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart, A new building in Bushwick, Brooklyn, that provides offices, co-working, event spaces, and a brand new podcast recording room. Have you been dreaming of starting your very own podcast in Brooklyn? You can now rent space in 100 Bogart's custom-built podcast room to record interviews, voiceover, and commentary. The room is fitted out with two microphones, mixing board, and a MacBook Pro running Pro Tools. You can rent the space by the hour, and a rental of an hour or more includes a 100 Bogart co-working pass. That means complimentary coffee, tea, and access to your own desk for the rest of the day. So what are you waiting for? Get started on your next audio project. 100 Bogart has the space and amenities you need to kickstart your podcast. Learn more at 100bogart.com or call their team at 718 362 Welcome back to Hardcore. Before you taste a cider or buy it, you're likely going to have a look at its label. And this tiny bit of real estate on the bottle, or can, is more critical than it seems at first glance. Here's Olivia Mackey from Redfield Cider.
3: Label art is really important. I wish that that wasn't the case, but it is. And then what you say about the cider on the label matters as well. So people want to know if it's dry or if it's sweet. And oftentimes they want to know where it comes from. And then something that Mike and I say a lot, and we're trying to train consumers to do this, is that if you're looking for a cider that has a lot of integrity – The producer is usually going to say what kind of apples are in it because they're really proud of that. Right. So if you're at a grocery store and you don't recognize any of the producers, usually I'll like flip over the label and just be like, "Hmm, I wonder like what they wrote about this on the side. Because if they're talking about how it's like Northern Spy, Davenet and Kingston Black, like they're using fruit they're really excited about and proud of. And that's probably going to show in the product. Um, If they don't mention anything about the apples or maybe just say like fresh apples or local apples, you know, they might not be working with really high quality fruit. And that's probably going to be reflected in the end product. So if you've got awesome stuff in it, like talk about it 100 percent. I think that's something you should be proud of. Paige
1: Flory from Boutique Wine Spirits Insider agrees that sharing a product's ingredients creates a stronger connection between maker and drinker.
5: So, as somebody that's in the gateway between a consumer and the actual purchase of cider, I think the consumer is a lot more sophisticated than. People give them credit for. I think consumers as a whole really want to understand. It's just that we're not giving them a whole lot of tools with which to do that. So, things like varietals of apple, I think that's key on a label. Here's why. While they may never have heard of Ashmead's kernel, for example, what a consumer might do is see that same apple on several different styles of cider that they like and then realize, hey, I like ciders that contain that particular apple and then look for those
1: and then there's a different type of label the price tag here's deva moss from redbird cider the cider that she and her husband eric make is sold in glass bottles with a champagne styled cork and their products are priced more like wine
7: than beer how do we want our cider to be perceived by the public that matches what we're doing, we decided to stay with the 750 milliliter glass bottle format. Um, We really do consider our cider as apple wine, and it's taxed as apple wine (laughs) to most of ours because of the alcohol content in it. We try to have very informative labels to describing what apple varieties are in them, what to pair with. We're really excited about pairing cider with food. And the more we can talk about that, I think the more it elevates it to a beverage for your table. It
1: can be difficult to get consumers to understand why cider can be a little pricey. But once you know what goes into making a really good cider, it starts to make a lot more sense. Jordan Warner Berry has some thoughts on the subject.
6: Cider, compared to wine, even at the highest end of cider, it's an affordable option. And there are a lot of producers out there now who, honestly, I think should be charging more because what they're doing takes an enormous amount of work from you know years of taking care of orchards or tracking trees out in the woods. And all of the agricultural things that go into it are really undervalued. If you spend $30 on a bottle of wine, it's like a pretty good bottle of wine. If you spend $30 on a bottle of cider, it's the best fucking bottle of cider you can buy in the United States. To every point, there is a counterpoint. Meet David
1: Casquillon, founder of Barica Cider. He distributes cider from Spain's Basque region, where you can find one of the oldest and richest cider cultures in the world. In Basque country, cider is plentiful and affordable.
8: A large percentage of the population has cider in the fridge. But it's, like I said, it's, it's, the, it's the inexpensive mm-hmm. sort of wine substitute beverage. So if you don't feel like opening a bottle of wine, you open a bottle of cider, it's two bucks rather than five.
1: David wants to translate that casual cider drinking culture to the U.S. market.
8: As our orchards continue to come back and our cider makers also figure out ways to make the dessert and culinary fruit that we have widely and cheaply available into quality cider, it'll become more accessible price-wise for the consumer. And so it won't be, you know, as cool as those $30, $35 bottles of cider are, you know, it's my opinion, after experiencing the cider cultures in Europe, that that's not cider's place. Cider should be a drink for the people, widely available.
1: Whether your cider is sold in a bottle or a can, whether it's two euro or thirty dollars, the label can have an immediate effect on how consumers view the product. Just ask Olivia Mackey.
3: I think it's difficult for producers to just be like, I can throw something together in word and like the cider is going to speak for itself. I've heard that so many times, like the cider is going to speak for itself. And unfortunately, that's just not the case. And you can have the most beautiful cider in the world. And if you don't have a compelling label, nobody's going to buy it. And then the flip side of that is you can have incredible packaging and the product might not be that good and people are going to buy it because the packaging is compelling. Her advice? When you're thinking about creating a product, you should really be thinking about who you're trying to sell it to. And as someone who's worked in marketing and and gone through redesigns with people, oftentimes initially they don't actually like the redesign itself um, because it's not something that they might particularly like or they might not understand. And... At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter if you love your labels and it's a true reflection of yourself because if no one else is going to buy it, it doesn't matter. Hopefully with a growing market for cider, producers will have
1: the resources they need to showcase their product on store shelves. From the consumer side, we don't always realize that every experience we have, from walking into a bar to picking up a can has been carefully designed for us. Olivia Mackie and her husband and business partner have thought a lot about what they want their bar to look and feel like.
3: Mike and I are very intentional about moving away from historical references, woodsy references, folksy references, in part because like that's not something that ap- appeals to us and I don't think it appeals to our consumer base in Oakland. And so with Redfield we wanted to create a space that felt like modern and cool and like, you know, a place that we would actually want to spend time.
1: They even have some specific rules that are in direct opposition to the more traditional down home aesthetic of cider
3: when we were doing the build out, I had a very strict no Apple policy in terms of like, I didn't want there to just be like kitschy Apple stuff everywhere or like harvest barrels. And I just wanted it to feel like a a more modern and clean space that didn't have these preconceived notions of what the beverage is. Um, And I have to say with one caveat, which is that Mike's sister, who's an incredible artist, did make us these beautiful paintings of apple branches, but they're very stylized, and you don't necessarily know that they are. So I broke my own no apple rule, but I think within reason.
1: (laughs) Shaxbury Cider embraces the apple and flannel vibe a little bit more. Here's Luke Schmucker.
9: We have a, a cider company that we kind of treat like a lifestyle brand, I guess. More than anything, we've always... Loved having the ability to cross over and do a lot of collaboration projects, but from from the get go, we've we're lucky enough to be based in Vermont, which is a very beautiful place to have a business, and we've we've built our brand around Vermont, and we've always thought of ourselves as a very outdoorsy sort of cider that we've. We talk a lot about how we want people to consume cider outdoors and we want people to live an active, balanced lifestyle.
1: To Luke, Shaxbury's aesthetic and easygoing, cozy branding is all shaped by their roots in the Northeast.
9: New Englanders aren't flashy. I mean, I wear the same shirts that my dad wore and, uh, you know, maybe they fit slightly different, but like we're still wearing the same stuff and it's like, you think about like an l. l bean flannel. it's never really going in or out of style, or like bean boots like they're just the type of thing where it's a good solid product that looks good and I think that there's another place on our special projects and collaborations where we can do wild things that are just like super in right now, and you know it's a product that comes and goes, but when we think about our core cans, those were more reserved with and want something that has longevity.
1: You can tell how much Luke loves his flannel and bean boots. It's even led him to dream about some creative collaborations for the brand.
9: There's been beers with Patagonia. Um, Patagonia does like a very cool, very well-branded beer collaboration that they do. And uh, I've been hunting to figure out who I know over at L.L. Bean to do a Shaxberry, L.L. Bean collaboration. There are certain things about their brand that I think coincide so well with Shaxbury. So that's like, I mean, their slogan is be an outsider. Like how is that not just like being out like C-I-D-E-R cider? I'm just, I'm gonna say this and someone else is gonna like jump in and do like an L.L. Bean collab before me. So I'm just calling it right now. Like it's on the record, it's gonna happen.
1: Stepping away from the bottle and can design, what else can brands do when they band together? Let's zoom out to the industry as a whole and the tools that cider makers have as a collective to reach new curious drinkers. Jen Smith sees the need for communal and structural support within the
7: cider industry. I think that it's the role of the trade associations, the trade organizations, that can kind of take a um, ten thousand foot view. The New York Cider Association has close relationships with both the United States Association of Cider Makers, but also the Northwest Cider Association, the Virginia Cider Association. We compare and contrast with one another. Um, we work together to solve certain pain points, and. Even within New York State, you know, you're able to, to see the entire landscape, which ranges from producers making the minimum 100 gallons a year up to the largest cider company in New York State. So working with trade organizations really empowers cider makers um, in that it gives them the benefit of, a, of an industry landscape view. And then there's
1: Cider Week a vital and celebratory way for cider makers to step away from the orchard and get some face time with consumers.
4: Here's Rachel Fryer. It's super important to have a committed Cider Week um, happening. It is a way for consumers and um, trade, trade partners to kind of like focus on their support of cider. This is my first year producing all of the Cider Weeks. I have been a participant on the trade side of Cider Weeks. Since 2013, and I've also been a consumer going to cider weeks. I've had a lot of people like outreach to me, consumers outreach to me through the website, asking, "Hey, when do you post the events for cider week?" And you know, what's going on? And like, you know, when when's the big tasting? And I realized, you know, the work that the New York Cider Association and Glenwood have done, you know, since 2010, they have created something that is very anticipated and very um, well received. Cider Week really is something special. It's an inviting and unintimidating way to learn more about the world of cider. This was my first uh, Cider Week in Finger Lakes, and I was overwhelmed with how well received and anticipated it is, and celebrated, and really celebrated. You know, the cider makers are in the midst of apple harvest and pressing, and like there's so much going on, but... I saw excitement in them too, you know? Um, I I think this is uh, really important to have a dedicated time in this one week where everyone comes together to kind of celebrate and support the cider industry and um, be able to look forward to that every
1: year. With the help of events like Cider Week, we're getting close to a future where cider is always on the menu. Next time on Hardcore, we're going to look into the crystal ball to try and glimpse what the future of cider will look like in the United States. From getting consumers to truly understand the beverage in all its forms...
8: I essentially always tell them it's like a funky natural wine meets a sour beer meets kombucha. Yeah, Can you picture that in your head? Not really. You almost got to taste it.
1: ...to taking inspiration from European cider culture...
4: There's no confusion about what the product is. It's just part of their culture. It's part of their identity. It was really refreshing to see that that's possible.
1: And pursuing equity and diversity in this
7: ever-growing industry. Land ownership in New York State is white. And cider is tied more to land ownership than other farm-based craft beverage categories.
1: That's all coming up next week. On our season finale of Hardcore. Thank you for listening. If you've been enjoying Hardcore, please take a moment to leave a review and rating on your favorite podcast app. This really helps us reach new listeners, and we love hearing what everyone thinks of the show. Hardcore is produced by Dylan Hoyer and me, Hannah Forden, with lots of help from Kat Johnson. This episode was engineered by Matt Patterson. Special thanks to Jordan Werner-Berry. Hardcore is powered by Simplecast and is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio.